All right, we're going to be continuing this morning in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 uh, this morning. And uh, this passage contains a couple of parables, uh, but the first one involves uh, a wedding. Um, and, but it involves a wedding tradition that we would be unfamiliar with uh, because it was a wedding tradition that was familiar to uh Jesus's followers and, and that, that culture at that time, uh, but it's not one that we would necessarily understand or relate to. Uh, but it does involve waiting at a wedding, um, which is something we are all familiar with, because apparently that's just true across all cultures and all times, that if you're going to go to a wedding, you're going to have to wait around quite a bit, right? You know, you've been to a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding that started on time? No, you haven't. You haven't. You haven't been to one that started on time. You got to wait for the wedding to start. You get start to get excited when you see the mom sit down. You're like, hey, I think it's about to start now, finally. Um, but even then, it's not, not quite yet. Not quite yet. And then, and then after the ceremony, of course, then you have the waiting for the, uh, the bride and groom to finish taking their Instagram photos. Right, they have to go to take photos, and you're waiting at the reception. And if they've, uh, if they have been generous and and blessed you, there are appetizers. But sometimes you have to make sure you bring your own snacks. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of waiting. This is what we're going to see in this passage today it involves waiting at a wedding. We'll look first here at verses one through thirteen, the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So Jesus describes a wedding tradition that was common in, in his day, uh, in which the bridegroom would come from his town, or if they happened to be from the same town, he would go away, and, and he would come for the bride. So the bride would wait outside of town with her bridesmaids, right, with her friends. They would wait there for the bridegroom to come um, on, for, for the wedding day. Now, the wedding day wasn't a specific day. It would be like, we're going to get married this weekend. And you wouldn't know when the bridegroom would come. And it's actually, uh, traditionally, they would come sometime in the middle of the night. Like an exciting, like, oh, who knows when he's going to show up. Um, it wasn't like rude. It was, it was like, this was the exciting thing of like, can, let's stay up. It would be common for them to even take naps and things like that while they were waiting. But the bride would wait for the bridegroom to come. And then with her friends, and, and then they would join him, and they would proceed through the town, taking the longest possible route to get to the, the house where the marriage feast was going to take place, um, and people could come out and join them. So it would be known that this was happening, and like it says in this passage, there'd be a runner going ahead of him. He'd have one of his, 
his friends run ahead saying, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. Um, and, and he would kind of announce that this is happening. And so then people would have a chance to come out and join the wedding party, follow them to the place where the marriage feast was. But if you weren't, if you weren't ready and you didn't catch the train, right, if you didn't catch with the group of people, then when they went in, they closed and locked the doors and no one was let in late. You couldn't show up late. And so that's what Jesus pictures here in this passage is this tradition uh, of waiting. And he, he imagines that 10 of these bridesmaids, five of them bring extra oil because they don't know how long it's going to be that they're going to need to wait. And five of them don't bring any extra and they run out. And so then when it's the bridegroom is coming, they realize they're out of oil and, and they have to go buy more. And so then they miss the bridegroom and they miss being able to go to the wedding feast. So now the important thing here is we have to break down this parable. What does it mean for us? So the bridegroom represents Jesus, right? Uh, that's maybe somewhat obvious. The bridegroom represents Jesus. The, the young women, the bridesmaids, the virgins, they represent us. They represent his followers, and the wait represents the time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. That's most of the passage today is going to be talking about what happens in the meantime between his ascension, after his resurrection, he ascends to heaven, and his second coming when he returns. In, in chapter 24, we're mostly looking at what does that end look like when he comes back. But now he's kind of telling them, hey, there's going to be some time between then and now that you're going to have to wait. And so that's why this first parable is about waiting. Because the lamps and the oil don't really necessarily represent anything specific. Some people have tried to figure that out, and, and it kind of works to say, oh, it's about faith, or it's about love, or it's about um, you know, doing good works or something like that. But that's not really the point of the parable, because the point of the parable is being prepared for a long wait. Jesus is telling them, like, You've been asking, they'd been asking questions and he'd been answering things and telling them about what's it going to be like when he returns, but he's letting them know, hey, maybe the more important thing is you're going to have to be prepared for a long wait because not everyone is prepared for a long wait. Some people come to Christ and they expect everything to change miraculously overnight. Some people come to Christ and they expect, well, then everything in my life should be perfect now. That's not how it works, right? To some extent, you have an old life and a new life. In a very important way, you have a new life and an old life. But that, and maybe some things change immediately when you came to Christ, when you first accepted Jesus. Maybe some things changed overnight and you stopped doing certain things and started seeking to follow him. But as any, any mature Christian believer would tell you, sanctification is a lifelong process. And that, that time of, of learning from Jesus and becoming more like him is a day-by-day -day process that, that, that keeps going until the day you die. It's a long wait, and the wait for Jesus has been long. To this point, it's been almost 2,000 years, and Jesus tells them, you know neither the day nor the hour. He tells them, keep watch, be vigilant, because we don't know the day or the hour when he'll return. The wait will be long, but in the meantime, we have kingdom business to attend to, which is what he's going to talk about in this next parable, the parable of the talents. Look at verses 14 through 30. 
For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the, him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, so again, we need to break down the parable because the parables are just made-up stories that, that teach a big truth. That's the important part of them. Little stories that teach a big truth. So we've got to break down this parable. The man represents Jesus. It's the master represents Jesus. Going on a journey, again, represents that time between his ascension and his second coming, the time we're all living in right now. His servants represent Jesus' followers, including any of us in this room who consider ourselves followers of Jesus. Now, a talent, I first want to tell you not what it represents, but what it actually was, because that's not something we're familiar with. Um, a talent was a monetary unit that represented 20 years' work for a day laborer. So converted into today's dollars, it's around $600,000. So one talent is a lot of money, right? Two talents is still is a, is a, ton, a lot of money. It's over a million dollars. Five is a great amount of money. So even the guy who got one, you think like, well, he only got one. Like, you can't blame the guy. But like, that's a lot of money for him to just do nothing with. Um, but what they represent is the things that Jesus has given us to invest, the things he's given us to use that include time, energy, skills, money. Even th this, this is where you get the English word talent from, is from this this passage is where we get this idea. So even the talents, the abilities that we have are all come from him. Now, he also talks about allocation, right? He says in this passage, he gave these, he gave five talents, another two, another one to each according to his ability. Now, so the allocation is different 
for each person. And that's true of the things we just talked about. Now, other than time, we're all allocated the same amount of time, at least in a day, I guess not in a lifetime. Um, but generally, we're all given different amounts. Some people have more skills than others. Some people have the ability to make more money or even born into more money than other people. Some people, you know, there's, there's, always, there's a difference in what we've been given by God. Some people have been given more. Some people have been given less. Now, you can have two reactions to this reality where he says to each according to his ability. You can have two reactions. The first one is to be frustrated and angry about that. That's not fair. How come we aren't all given the same? Right? That's one reaction you can have. That's, that's, I'll give you the second one, but I'll tell you up front, that's the bad one. Okay? Should it be obvious? But just, just be clear. A second reaction is to realize we'd be grateful that God made us, created us, knows us, and so then knows what we are capable of and does not expect more from you than you are able. He expects only what you are able to do. Notice that in this passage, he has the same exact reaction to the guy who had five and doubled it to ten, to the guy who had four, had two and doubled it to four. Exact same reaction. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been, you've done well with little, you'll be entrusted with more. He has the exact same reaction. And, and I think that you could chain, even reverse that, the order of this parable and say, the one what if the one had invested and he got two and the two had invested and he got four and the five just buried it in the ground and did nothing with it and gave that, came out with five? He would still would have come out with more than any of those other guys. But God's reactions would have been the same. The reaction of the master would have been the same. Why did you waste what I gave you? Why did you waste what I gave you? It's not about how much you do. It's about what you do with what God has given you the point of this parable. What do you do with what God has given you? He expects us to invest it. In Romans, Paul speaks about how we are to use our gifts. In Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul's speaking here about spiritual gifts and how we use them. And he's saying essentially, we've been given these gifts, we should use them, right? That's the main point of the, that's his topic sentence in this passage. He says we should use them. We should use what we have been given by God. Now, I wanna, I'll say something about spiritual gifts, a couple things to hear about spiritual gifts. One, I know that there are some people who say, well, spiritual gifts are very specific and, and limited thing, right? It's, it's the things that are listed in the passages in Scripture where it talks about spiritual gifts, like here in Romans 10. But there's other places where Paul talks about spiritual gifts. The lists are never exactly the same, but people kind of, gather all those lists and go, then here are the spiritual gifts. And so then anything else is not a spiritual gift. But everything you have comes from him. So why are you, why do you care? <laughs> That's my point. Why do you care, why do you care to define what a spiritual gift is or not? I remember being in high school and thinking like, oh, cool, like music is one of my spiritual gifts. And I was told, no, it's not. 
That's just a skill. What's the difference? What's the difference? It all comes from him, and it all should be used for his glory. So why tell a 16-year-old kid that music isn't a spiritual gift, that it's not from God? Why? What's the point of that? And besides, yes, I have a lot to say about spiritual gifts. <laughs> okay. Besides, here's the thing. So everybody that has these lists, they go, this is all the spiritual gifts, and there are no other ones other than this list. Then they create a test that you can take and determine which ones you have. Okay? And here's what everybody does. They take the test. They go, oh, yeah, this is what I feel, and this is what I think, and this is my experience. And they fill it out, and then they add it up, and they go, here are my spiritual gifts. Here's what doesn't happen. They don't go, oh, cool, here are my spiritual gifts. I'm going to go sign up for some stuff and serve in those areas. No, that's not what they do. That's what we think they're going to do. They don't do that. They go, okay, here are my spiritual gifts. So here are the things I didn't score in. That's all the stuff I don't have to do. Right? Hey, listen, Pastor Chris, I'd love to come help clean up after Wednesday Club, but serving just isn't one of my spiritual gifts. Right? That's not how you're meant to use those things. And that's not what Paul's point is here. That's not what God's point is here. It's supposed to use what we have been given. It's supposed to invest it for the kingdom. That's investing our time. That's investing our energy, investing our skills, even investing our money for the sake of the kingdom. Do we do these things while he is away? Because he says that when he comes back to everyone who has, more will be given. If we're faithful with what has been entrusted to us, we'll be entrusted with more. We'll be rewarded and receive more responsibility, greater responsibility. Sometimes that happens in this life, that, that God entrusts us with something small, and if we are faithful and, and, and do what he's asked us to do, then he'll entrust us with more, even in this lifetime. But here, what Jesus speaks of is that we've been entrusted with a small amount here on earth, that in the new heavens and the new earth, in some way, we'll be entrusted with more things. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that is specifically, but that's pretty exciting to think about, that there's more available to us, that there will be more given to those who have. He then says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Those who are not faithful, who do not invest their time, who do not invest their gifts, who do not invest the things that God has given them for the sake of his kingdom, he says that they, they will have even what they have taken away from them. What he's speaking of here is the fact that if, if we don't respond and use what God has given us for his kingdom, if we don't respond, then we don't understand. We don't know him. Notice, notice what he says in that passage. Right? He says, he says, I, I, the, the man says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow, gathering where you scatter no seed, right? He, said, he says, I knew you to do these things. And essentially the master says, you didn't know me at all. If you knew me, you would have used what I gave you. You didn't know me at all. The, the problem with that servant is that he didn't understand his master. He didn't understand the master's heart. And that's the problem with, with many people who claim to follow Jesus but don't do anything for his kingdom, don't live for his kingdom. They don't understand his heart. They don't truly understand the gospel. At the end of this passage, this guy goes to hell. 
And that's the picture that Jesus is painting, is this guy goes to hell because he didn't understand his master. Our salvation is by grace through faith, but true understanding of the gospel is evidenced by submission to Christ and a desire to serve him. James speaks of this in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What he's saying there is that essentially that faith is, there is never true faith that is not accompanied by these things, that doesn't have any, any evidence, any evidence in the way that we live and the things that we do. In other words, faith is never asymptomatic. Faith is never asymptomatic. You always have evidence of that faith. Consider that the solution for a dead faith is not evidence, that is not evidenced by work cannot be to work harder, but rather to fall more in love with Jesus. Right? If, we, if you go, well, man, my faith doesn't seem to have any evidence. I don't do anything. I don't have a desire to serve. I don't have any of these things. The solution can't be then to just go do the work, just to go serve, just to go fake it and, and make it happen. Because that is not the same thing, right? You can still have all those things, but not actually have faith. You can actually do a lot of stuff without having any faith. That's what religious people do, right? It's if I do these things, I can please God. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is you've already found favor with God by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice makes you righteous. And then out of a result of understanding of what he has done for you, you have a desire to serve him. You have a desire to live for him. You have a desire to, and you love the things that he loves and want to do the things that he does. <clears throat> Consider this. Consider your, your wife, your, maybe even your husband says to you, listen, I just don't, I feel like you don't care about me. I do so much to keep our household going and you just come home and sit on the couch and watch TV and you ignore me and, and it's like, I, like I, just, I just take care of everything and you don't do anything and, and you don't even have a relationship with me. And she's very upset. And the husband's like, oh, I guess I better do some stuff. So she stops bothering me. And so then he goes and starts just doing stuff, but his attitude's the same, right? Some of you guys may have tried this. It doesn't work, Right? And you're like, what the heck? I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm doing what you wanted. Doing what you asked. But the problem is that's not, it has to come out of a love for your wife. It has to come out of a love for your wife. That's the change. She wants you to care about her and notice what she's doing and, and do it out of a desire, the love that you have for her. It's the same with Jesus. It's not about just doing the things that he's called us to do. It's about doing them because we have fallen more in love with Jesus, because we have understood the sacrifice that he made and have desire to respond to it. Speaks more about more of this in, in verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or in prison, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus now shifts topics back to the end and, the, and specifically the final judgment, right? That when, when he's, he, he's away, but when he returns, he will sit on his glorious throne and he will judge the nations. And he, he makes this picture of dividing the sheep from the goats. So there'll be some on the left and some on the right. And it'll just divide people. And there's no, that's not a sliding scale. You know what I mean? It's, you're either on the right or you're on the left. There are no sheep-goat hybrids in the middle. That's an important distinction. He's not saying like he's going to line you up in order of who's best and who's worst. You're on the right or the left. And he says in this passage, the, the distinction is how you treated the least of these. The least of these. Which he's talking first about the poor, essentially. The the sick, the thir- I mean, sorry, the thirsty, the hungry, the naked, those lacking basic needs that would be the poor. He also talks about the stranger, which in his day, that, that word, that same word can be translated as sojourner or foreigner or immigrant. It was pictured somebody who was coming and living among the Israelites who was not of the Israelites. Someone from another nation coming and living among them would be treated as an outsider, would be treated as an outcast. And he says, no, you are to welcome them. You are to care for them. You are to bring them in. He also pictures the, the sick, right? those who are ill. He pictures, uh, he also says that those, those who are in prison. And especially in his day, many places where you could be in prison, you you weren't given food and water. Unless someone came and visited you and gave you that stuff, that was how you would live. So he's saying, visiting those who are in prison. Those who helped the least of these are admitted into the kingdom. Those who did not are sent to eternal punishment. And Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In other words, we serve Jesus by serving those who are in need. And this has to do with aligning our heart with his, again. 
This is who Jesus came for. This is who Jesus says in the beginning of his ministry. He opens the scroll of Isaiah and says that these are the people that he came for. That he came for the broken. He came for the hurting. He came for those that were in need. So he identifies with them and says that's when we do that, we are doing what he came to do. That he came to love and care for the broken, the sick, the hurting, the poor. And he intends us to do the same. So when we care for the least of these, then we are caring for him. In this passage, those who care for the least of these, they go to the kingdom. They go to eternal life. Those who don't go to eternal punishment, that's hell. That's what we talk about commonly as hell. Eternally separated from God. Now, we have to talk a little bit here at the end then about salvation by grace through faith. Because you could easily read this passage and just get to the end of, of this, this chapter and say, wow, I guess it's actually a works-based salvation. Because you have to care for the least of these. You have to invest your talents and all those things. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. And we have to take Scripture as a whole. That's another important thing to always consider. You can't, if you read different passages of Scripture and you go, well, these seem to contradict each other, you have to figure out how they work together because they don't contradict each other. Scripture is, is a cohesive whole. So we have to take it together. So if we read, for example, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. A true understanding of that grace that has saved us, that we are saved by grace, access that grace through faith, that we are, that a true understanding of that grace will invariably lead us to love what he loves and desire to do what he has called us to do. That if we truly understand Jesus and truly understand the sacrifice that he made for us, we will be compelled to serve him. We will be compelled to submit to him, to make him our king. When we talk about calling Jesus our Savior and Lord, a Savior comes first because that's, where we, that's how we encounter him first and foremost. We encounter him as Savior, we ex- realize the forgiveness that he makes possible for us, accept that forgiveness, receive that grace and mercy, and then that compels us to make him our Lord to submit our lives to him, to desire to give him control over our lives and to do what he wants us to do. We'll wrap up with this. Three takeaways for today's message. Number one, be prepared, be prepared for a long life of faith. It's not something that you do just for a couple weeks or a couple months. This is something that you do for a lifetime until Je- or until Jesus returns. Number two, invest what God has given you for the sake of the kingdom. Recognize and invest what God has given you for the sake of the kingdom. And then lastly, align your heart with God's heart. And that last one is difficult, can be difficult at times, because one thing that I didn't mention about the least of these, or Jesus talks about serving the least of these, is that uh, serving the least of these can be very disappointing at times. It can be frustrating. It can be hard because oftentimes people that get themselves into a least of these situation got themselves there by making terrible choices, right? Got themselves there 
oftentimes it's entirely their fault. And your, your, oftentimes your reaction will be like, well, that, why, why should I care? That's their fault. Or oftentimes your, your reaction will be like, well, they're, yeah, they're in that situation because look at all the bad choices they made and look at how they are now. Like they're not even nice to be around and gosh, I don't like these least of these. <laughs> and that's you know, often, honestly, fair enough. Like it's hard serving the least of these. The only way you can do that is by truly seeing them as Jesus and seeing them, way, them the way that he sees them. And recognizing that they are somebody that Jesus came to die for. And asking God to align your heart with his. Because that, that's the only solution for us. is always by grace. That he would give us that gift of seeing with his eyes. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And then we'll take communion together. And then we'll sing one final song. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would Encourage us, strengthen us for this long life of faith, for the waiting that we are living in, the already, not yet, the reality that we're living in, that, that you are coming back and we long for your return. In the meantime, God, show us how we can invest what you have given us, how we can serve you, how we can submit to you. And we pray that we would have the desires that you have, that we would have the heart that you have, the love that you have for the least of these. So we submit our lives to you, God. We lay our hearts out to you and ask you to change us from the inside out to make us more like Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray, amen.